Uh, a general sense of law that's somewhat pervasive in current or contemporary thoughts uh, typically view it as somewhat invasive and oftentimes as arbitrary. We find law discomforting, especially when it curtails our free expression or prevents us from doing things which we think manifestly obvious or otherwise convenient. And there can be a kind of general exasperation with, with law which pervades contemporary culture. And you see this exasperation also when uh, it concerns ecclesiastical law, right? So uh, whether it be marriage law or family law or things pertaining to human sexuality, the church will often be painted as outdated, authoritarian, kind of anachronistic almost. And so a lot of people approach law with the disposition that it is a violence or that it is an affront to my otherwise manifestly reasonable sensibilities. But there's a tradition in uh, the Western world that speaks of law as the wise restraints that make men free. So we want to drill down in the time that we have specifically examining what about law is binding and what about law is freeing, and then transition to a consideration of what about law uh, can be broken or in, under what circumstances. So here, uh, a theological overarching narrative will be helpful precise, for precising precisely what we mean. So I want to take the story of the Exodus as a way of orienting our conversation. So the book of Exodus, you know, occurs in the first five books of the Bible, often referred to as the Pentateuch or the Torah or the law in the Jewish tradition. And the Exodus occurs uh, as the second of those five books. So you recall that it begins with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And within the book of Exodus, you have some of the most significant events in the cultural and national identity of the people of Israel, you see them formed in a kind of principial way to be who they are ultimately to be on the world, on the religious stage. Uh, some key passages to orient our thoughts about Exodus. Uh, Exodus 3, the revelation of the name. You recall that in Exodus 1 and 2, Moses is sent down the river in a rush basket. He's picked up by uh, Pharaoh's daughter, he's meant to kind of like, he, he grows up in that household, but then defending the rights of a Hebrew, he eventually has to flee from Egypt. And then while serving his father-in-law Jethro and Midian, the Lord appears to him in the shape of a burning bush. So Exodus is principally about the revelation of the nature of God. That's what we take from Exodus 3. And at the heart of that, Exodus 3.14 is the revelation of the name, that God is he who is. Um, and that's variously translated in the tradition, but St. Thomas Aquinas focuses here especially on the metaphysics of creation, that God just is subsisting to be. God exhausts all that there is of being. So there's a sense of overabounding life. There's a, a sense of divine vitality that all creation participates in or has a share in. And then we go from there to the story of the plagues and then the story of the Passover, which was recounted in Exodus 12 and 13. So you recall that at the end of the book of Genesis, the story of Joseph, chapters 30, 37 through 50, Joseph uh, effectively helps Israel from you know, its, its circumstances in which it's being... Uh, there, there, there's a famine in the land, in the promised land, and so they eventually come to Egypt so as to avail themselves of the, of the rich resources that Joseph has stored up, but then they fall into slavery. And so the story of the plagues, and specifically the story of the Passover, is about their deliverance or their liberation from slavery. And it's in that where you hear some of the most precious Jewish rites described, namely circumcision, uh, redemption of the firstborn, the Passover meal itself. All of these rites which are used to memorialize this event, uh, signaling the fact that it is 
of primary importance for Israel's national consciousness are described here. And then, somewhat strangely and paradoxically, at the heart of a story which recalls an exodus, a leading forth out of the way, uh, a story of liberation, is the promulgation of the law. So chapters 20 through 23, 24 speak of the Mosaic Covenant. They speak of the Mosaic Law. They, they give the Ten Commandments, and then they begin the enumeration of a number of precepts which will be filled out in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, the total of which number 613, which some exegetes say is the addition of 365 for the days of the year, and then 248, the parts of the body. So this is a law that encompasses all of what it means to be one in relation to God. So here, how could it be the case that a story that recounts a liberation narrative is so preoccupied with law? Recall, in our minds, oftentimes we think about laws arbitrary and invasive as something curtailing my freedom and not in any way advancing it or promoting it. So how could this, how could this abide at the heart of Exodus? Well, here, I think it's helpful to consider what is being communicated, being communicated by the liberation that the Lord affects in the book of Exodus. So uh, it's sometimes shocking for people to recognize the fact that God is not so often identified as Father in the Old Testament. So, for instance, by, by comparison or by contrast, in the New Testament, he is referred often to as Father. So, the, from the Lord's own lips, we hear God referred to as Father 119 times in the Gospel of John alone. But in the Old Testament, depending on how you parse some passages, God is referred to as Father only a mere 11 times. So, this notion of God's paternity is something that's Christological. We learn of it through the only begotten Son, incarnate in human flesh, pointing back to his eternal origin from whom he proceeds unto ages of ages. But already in the Old Testament, we have faint hints and shadows of God's paternity, of his fatherhood. And he communicates it through the exercise of providence, and specifically by the mirabilia dei, the, the great deeds of God, which show that he will provision for Israel, specifically in the giving of covenants and in making himself known as one faithful to those covenants. So though we be faithless, yet he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So God is a covenant God, and he shows himself paternal, or he shows himself fatherly, by honoring his covenants, or being bound to his word, and providing for Israel's welfare. <clears throat> so, this whole liberation narrative is an extended testimony to God's identity as a covenant God, and it communicates that in especially acute or especially beautiful form. And... What is it that this is ultimately for? We hear it from Moses' own mouth. What does he request of Pharaoh? Permit us to go out into the desert so that we may worship. So that we may worship. The liberty that Israel pines for, or for which it pines, the liberty that it is in pursuit of is ultimately a liberty for something. For a deepening, an intensification of their relationship to the God by whom they have been called forth from Egypt. So with this in the background, let's talk a little bit about rules, define law, and then we're just going to give St. Thomas's enumeration. So St. Thomas's treatise on law comes in the prima secundae, so the first part of the second part, which is that generally concerned with fundamental moral theology, to use more modern terms. But it starts with considerations of beatitude, or of happiness, so the, the end. You cannot proceed one step if you know not where you are headed. <clears throat> so he, he considers happiness. And then he passes on to a consideration of human action, so that's like questions 6 through 17 of the Prima Secundae. And then another four questions concerning the fonts of morality. So like how do we evaluate and specify moral acts, like objects, intentions, circumstances, things of that nature. 
And then he talks about the passions, so the emotions, which are a principle of action both for man and for beasts. And then he gets into a description of habits and then breaks it out into virtues and vices. And then he treats law, and then he treats grace. And when dividing up, he says we're going to treat first those interior principles for human action. There he treats you know, intellect and will. He says we already talked about that in the Prima Pars. And then he talks about habits, virtues, and vices. Uh, and then he says we're going to talk about those extrinsic principles of human actions. And he says there are law and grace, whereby we are helped from without to live a good life, to live a happy life. So that's where we're going. So we need rules. We need rules. We, I think we realize this instinctively, but sometimes it's helpful to propose a thought experiment. So try to imagine your favorite game. <clears throat> try to imagine your favorite game. If you're from Michigan, it's probably a card game, perhaps Euchre, okay? If you're from India or Pakistan, perhaps you're thinking of cricket, who knows, okay? Now, try to picture that game without rules. Try to picture that game without rules. It's how most third graders conduct themselves on the playground. There are rules until those rules need be revised for my advantage. You know, that's out of bounds. No, I said out of bounds was further. It's like, oh my gosh, this will never end. So, if we were to try to conduct ourselves on the pitch or on the field without rules, it would be chaotic, and life would be a mess, and what is more, it wouldn't be fun, because you would just be enslaved to the demagogic whim of your most, like, ornery friend, right? Until such time as you either caved or sundered the relationship, which just doesn't hold out much of a prospect. So rules are generally conceived as something directing discourse, right, or delimiting the bounds of our enjoyment of life. We are inclined to the good, <clears throat> but after the fall, we, we find it difficult to achieve that good, and specifically to do so in an orderly fashion, or in a way that best represents the hierarchy of goods on offer. We're typically trying to affirm lower goods, and in so doing, supplanting higher goods, which uh, brings about a kind of interior confusion and an exterior lack of concord. So law, in its kind of basic sense, is there to make known to us what is good and to encourage us in the pursuit thereof. This is not a novel claim, but I'll repeat it because the rest is just an exposition of this. Law makes known to us what is good and encourages us to pursue it. This is a kind of classical notion, some would say an antiquated notion, but law is meant for the advancement of or the cultivation of virtue. This is in the Christian tradition, the Christian intellectual tradition, and again, specifically the thought proper to St. Thomas Aquinas. St. Thomas defines a law, and he identifies four main criteria whereby something is that something qualifies as a law, or something can be named a law. So he says it's an ordinance of reason, or a, a dictate of reason, that it's for the common good, that it's given by one with competent authority, and that it's promulgated. So it's an ordinance or a dictate of reason, for the common good, by one competent, and promulgated. He or already... The first word should strike us as novel, or at least running a thwart of the tendency of a lot of jurisprudential musings. So it's an ordinance of reason. Already here we have uh, the faint echo of what it means for law to be described as a wise restraint that makes men free. So it's an ordinance of reason. So it's not principally to be understood as an ordinance of will. <clears throat> it's an ordinance of reason. So specifically of reason conformed to reality and of making that vision or understanding of reality more widely known and observed. It's for the common good. This, I mean, the words common good have lost all purchase in the 21st century. 
I don't think that many people could conceive of a good that falls without the bounds of their own private interest, unless it's like a collection of private goods, right? So Father Aquinas Gilbo, who's the prior and a professor of moral theology at the Dominican House of Studies, he, he, he is at pains in describing the common good to adduce a lot of very helpful examples for showing what it is not. So the common good is not a particular good. And a, a lot of times the way that we describe the common good is just an assemblage of particular goods. He says, picture a candy jar or a pension or a reservoir. When you go to a doctor's office and you put your hand in the candy jar and take out something for you, that is common in a sense, in as much as it is offered to all, though those who fear the germs that live within that container would never partake thereof. Um, but we can only have that good by cashing out on that good. So it is diminished by our choosing. Or he says, picture a reservoir. This seems almost limitless, boundless, so my cashing out can't really diminish the thing, but truth be told, such is the case. I recently saw a documentary, and it was this big reservoir just north of Johannesburg, and even big reservoirs can be exhausted. And our partaking thereof means that we're depleting it, okay? And then he says, you know, picture the pension. This is something into which we have paid, and when we choose to take from it, again, it is depleted. Now, probably, if it's an ordinary pension, it's already been depleted by your boss. So you ought not to have thought that it was there when you came to take therefrom. So... We, we find it difficult to conceive of common goods except as an assemblage of particular goods. But a common good is something that's truly good, truly common, transcendent, and is not diminished by common partaking therein. And so you can think about this with respect to, like, the three great societies, so family, polity, and church. We're talking about an order that obtains among the persons, so it's, it's a kind of assemblage of relations, right, that has an intrinsic order, but also an, ext an extrinsic order. So these things are ordered within themselves and then ordered to higher common goods, and our participating in those things does not diminish them, but rather enriches them. So you think about the life of the family. By virtue of the fact that you buy in and your spouse buys in, and then in your buying in you generate others who buy in, you don't diminish the good of the family, you find that it is enriched. Like St. John Paul II preached, the greatest gift that you can give to your, your children is siblings, right? And when a man and a woman divorce, it's not as if one takes half of the marriage and the other takes half of the marriage. They all take none of the marriage, right? And they can adjudicate the ways in which they spend time with their children and the ways in which they disperse the funds, but there's no marriage to be divided. It's something that can only be had in a common sharing therein. So we said it's an ordinance of reason. It's for the common good. It's by one competent, that is to say one with authority, and we're not going to talk about theories here of how authority is vested or derived because... That's something else. And then it's promulgated. That is to say, it, it needs to be made known. It's addressed to an intelligence because law is for an intelligence. So then now, um, just in what remains, a brief description of the four main types of law that St. Thomas describes, a return to our Exodus theme, and then we'll open up for questions. So St. Thomas begins, and this is what you said, the treatise on law occurs in the Prima Secundae questions 90 through 108. 90 through 92 are front matter, and then 93 is the eternal law, 94 is the natural law, and then 95 through 108 are about human law and divine law. Eternal law. Here's an image. St. Thomas says, picture an artist. Picture an artist. Before he paints, he has a sense of what he intends to paint. Okay, so if it's Bob Ross, it's going to involve happy clouds and happy trees. If it's another artist, it'll involve something else. But he already has the notion at work in his mind. God, he says is a master artisan. And before he paints the masterpiece of creation, the masterpiece of redemption, he has a notion of what, in his wisdom, he intends to carry out. So we said, 
with respect to Exodus 3.14 that God is to be, that God is existence. His very essence is to be. God exhausts all that there is of being. So there's no division in God. That's not to say, well, it's to say that, that God is his existence. God is his intellect. God is his act of intellection. God is the object of his intellection. So we're not saying that like, God has a thought separate from himself, but that in God's knowing and loving of himself, there is this pattern whereby all that is without is already foreseen and efficaciously willed. This is all that we mean by the eternal law. So it's not some like strange occult thing at the working of the heart of the earth, but it's rather God's notion of the well-ordering of creation. <clears throat> now, natural law, and we'll spend a little time on this because, from what I understand, this is your principal interest. St. Thomas will say that different creatures participate in the eternal law in a variety of ways. Different creatures participate in the eternal law in a variety of ways. So the general distinction in the hierarchy of beings is that you have inanimate, you know, so you have rocks, minerals, then you have the animate but non-sensory. So you have vegetative life, and then you have animal life, and then you have men and women, and then you have angels. Okay, so you have these different ranks. And each, the lo like the lower touches the next higher at its low point. So the zenith touches the nadir. So there's a kind of continuous spectrum of being to which God weds his will, and it is. But each of these things participates the eternal law in a manner peculiar to its own nature. So nature just being the essence of a thing, or the whatness of a thing, what a thing is in its most um, interior, coherent, and integral sense, and that a nature is not only a principle of identity, but it's also a principle of unfolding. So a nature sets the terms for what a thing is, but it also sets the terms for how a thing is to be perfected. That's all that we mean by a nature in like the Aristotelian Thomistic tradition. So because I am this type of thing, I ought to comport myself in this type of way. And that's not going from an is to an ought, so don't worry about that at the outset. But what I am saying is that because I have teeth that are covered with enamel, it's good for me to floss with, you know, fix-a-dent. Is that a thing? Or is that like for keeping your dentures on? Um, it's good for me to floss with one kind of thing and not with another kind of thing. So if I were like, okay, should I use dental floss or a bandsaw? It would be helpful to consult the actual nature of my teeth so as to treat them in a way that comports with their being. So it's a principle of identity and a principle of unfolding. And different creatures proceed towards their ends according to their natures, but they do so in different ways. So rocks do so rockily. This will be silly. The adverbs that will follow will somewhat embarrass you, but you're going to have to deal with it, okay? So plants do so plantally, animals do so animally, and we do so humanly. Angels do so angelically. So rocks, by virtue of their material constitution, resist being broken up, such as their nature, unless it's a very soft rock. Okay. Um, plants, they proceed to their end uh, without cognition. They do so without deliberation. They do so as plants. So they have these vital powers that issue from their soul uh, of self-nutrition and growth and reproduction, and they don't need to be taught to turn their leaves to the sun that they may better photosynthesize nor to spread their seeds by burrs or by very light whatever things that dandelions do so as to better replicate or multiply. They, they just do those things. Animals, they proceed to their end instinctually. So you don't need to teach a lamb that a wolf is bad news. It sees it, it baths, and then it departs. So animals have it already written into their nature what it means for them to flourish, and they proceed accordingly. We are unique among material creation in that we do so as the fruit of intellect and will. 
So set apart from the beast, we have a mind with which to know and a heart with which to love, and we can conceive of our end, and we can choose whether or not to pursue it. This is what we mean by the natural law. This is what we mean by the natural law, that in our very members there is an impress of the eternal law. In our very members there is an impress of the eternal law whereby we can consciously, whereby we can intellectually and volitionally participate in that movement whereby we attain to our end. So we can conceive of it and choose whether or not. We can conceive of it and choose the type of prudential and moral life that helps us to muse better thereupon and to pursue it with greater alacrity, or to choose the type of moral life whereby that is obscured from us and we end up at a greater distance. So we have this law written within us through the inclinations of our bodily and spiritual life because we are set apart from the beast by intellect and will. And this is what is most distinctly human. It's also not insignificant that where, this is where the Christian tradition principally locates the image of God. This is what it means to be made ad imaginum dei, to the image of God. That we can participate in the divine life in peculiar fashion. Okay? So, everything, kind of, everything that's created has a kind of trace or vestige of the divine life in so much as it is. But to certain things uh, is accorded a yet greater dignity of living. But to certain things is accorded a yet greater dignity of understanding. So St. Thomas has this understanding of like essay, to be, and then vivere, to live, and then intellegere, to understand, as a kind of heightening or intensification of the image of God, which is perfected further yet by grace and glory, he says. So, God, who he'll say, you know, Exodus 3.14, is of an intellectual nature, can be participated in by creation, and we can do so intellectually. So this is how the natural law registers in our lives, registers in our members. And it's got a cognitional component, it's got a, um, an intellectual component, and it's got a bodily component, right? So, they, you know, St. Thomas will talk about the precepts of the natural law, the first of which is to do good and avoid evil. But he thinks that this can be teased out. We can make further determinations. And this, he says, is what we mean by natural law. So we'll talk about the Ten Commandments in these terms, that these are kind of second-order precepts of the natural law that have been teased out to a greater degree of concretion. Uh, but it's not just something that's hyper-intellectual, as if the natural law were promulgated to our minds and we have to assent to it in propositional terms, because he says it also operates at the level of inclination. So he says, insofar as we are a substance, we want to preserve our existence. Insofar as we are animals, we want to procreate and educate our children. Insofar, he says, as we are intellectual, we want to know the truth about God. We want to uh, live well in society. We want to uh, spurn ignorance or avoid ignorance, and we want to avoid avoiding, excuse me, avoid offending those with whom we live. These for him are not exhaustive lists, but by virtue of the fact that you are this type of thing, you have this type of inclination, and your flourishing is dependent upon your attaining to the end of that inclination. As a substance, as an animal, as a human being, all ordered hierarchically. So, a brief word then about human and divine law. To round out the discussion, human law is the concrete application or extension of the natural law in a particular time and place. That is to say that every aspect of human life needs a little more determination or it needs a little more concretion. And some of these things issue immediately from the eternal law as natural law, but we also need to make further determinations, not arbitrarily, but prudentially in accord with our time and place. So a classic example that you often hear is that whether you drive on the left side of the road or on the right side of the road, it doesn't matter. 
Now, some of you might be like so fiercely American or so fiercely English that you're like, no, there is a moral weight attached to it. Um, <laughs> first, you drive on the left side of the road, and then you start killing people. You know, crazy. Okay, no. Um, so in the United States, we drive on the right side of the road, but we've just determined that for the purpose of good order. Right? It's not necessary that it be such, based on the fact that we're human beings, that we have this cognitional component, that we have this embodied component. It's just, it was a choice. So, this is not part of the natural law, strictly speaking, but it's within the lawmaker's authority to govern on such things for public safety. And then lastly, divine law. Here we break this out into the Mosaic law and the new law of grace, or the evangelical law. The Mosaic law are those precepts given to Israel to safeguard their life and their worship. St. Thomas categorizes them in under three headings, the moral precepts, the ceremonial precepts, and the judicial precepts. So the moral precepts would be like, the Ten Commandments and the things that issue from them. The ceremonial precepts govern their worship, uh, and it's specifically a lot of them govern their ritual purity. And then the judicial precepts about how to determine uh, court cases, for lack of a better description. Uh, the thing that St. Thomas describes with respect to the old laws is that it doesn't justify. So it makes known the bounds or the limits of right relation with God, um, but what it doesn't do is give you the wherewithal to follow that infallibly or efficaciously. So we'll talk about it as the law of sin, or we'll talk about it as, um, yes, the law, like a kind of dead law. Specifically with respect to the new law then, this is something that's wrought in Jesus Christ, and St. Thomas will say something that's, that's pretty wild and revolutionary. He'll say that the new law just is the grace of the Holy Spirit poured into your hearts. Uh, from a jurisprudential standpoint, that sounds a little bit wild and woolly. It's like, how do I make concrete determinations based on the grace of the Holy Spirit poured into my heart? Please, help me. Okay, well, let's not get concerned with that, at least at the outset. Like I said, I don't know anything about politics or about jurisprudence, so I'm just going to go for it. Um, <laughs> right, but he says there is a written component, right? There is a written component in as much as we have the Gospels, and in as much as the evangelical laws made known in kind of intense form in Matthew 5 through 7, for instance, in the Sermon on the Mount, but what is described is a new life. What is described is a new life, and that life pertains by right to God and by a created participation to us who are welcomed into the divine life by grace. And the thing that is different about this law is that it actually does justify. So whereas the former does not necessarily make men and women good, the latter does. And so it gives us the impetus to carry out the law as described. So the, the Lord Jesus, from his own mouth, we have the words, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So he's not setting aside the old covenant, right? We're not supersessionists in that regard. But he does say that certain precepts that were particular for Israel in its time and place, namely the ceremonial precepts and the judicial precepts, they are not to be observed further in the life of the Christian church, right? Because we're issuing uh, or we're kind of bringing about a new thing here. But the moral law, that's actually heightened and intensified. Matthew 5, 27 through 28. You have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that any man who has so much as looked at a woman with lust in his heart has already done so. So it's an interiorization of that law, an intensification of it, but by giving us the grace, it's not as if we're just overburdened and like languishing underneath the weight of further precepts, but it's something that's now animated by the very life of God at work in our members. Here I said, the law of grace is questions 90 through 108. What is it followed by? Excuse me. Uh, the treatise on law is questions 90 through 108. What is it followed by? The treatise on grace, questions 109 through 114. The last question that he asked in question 108 concerning the evangelical law concludes with Article 4, which is about 
the councils, right? So poverty, chastity, and obedience. He says, what, 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 what's the deal here? He says, these are an intense way of living the precepts, of living the law, uh, but he says, in doing so more intensely, right? But it, it dovetails you right into a discussion of grace because the evangelical law, in a certain sense, can just be described as grace. So, let's return to our first thought about the wise restraints that make men free. Here, what we have described is something that's educative, something that's liberating, something that's content-rich, and something that is interior, right? That is set about to make men good. Now, that has to be applied analogically, depending on whether we're talking about eternal law, natural law, human law, or divine law. But it's far richer than what is often conveyed or portrayed in jurisprudential discussions. That's because this is a conversation proper to theology, but I do think that it sheds light on conversations proper to jurisprudence. And here, a final word about freedom. The notion that we have of law typically speaks of freedom in minimalistic terms, right? So, my rights begin where your rights end, something along those lines. We think about it in terms of nonviolence or non-coercion. I am free to the extent that I am not forced I'm free to the extent that I can sovereignly self-define, that I can exercise a modicum of autonomy that is you know, coherent and fitting with just civil order. But the freedom for which we are longing, or the freedom towards which we are gesturing in this picture, is beyond a mere freedom of indifference, but rather a freedom for excellence. Recall that Israel asked to go out into the desert to worship. They do it for something. Their freedom is poised for flourishing. It's poised for perfection. It's poised for a kind of expression of their relationship with God. So, what we're talking about here is just as revelatory of human nature as it is of a kind of supernatural claim or a supernatural destiny. St. Thomas will talk about here uh, in this discussion uh, the virtue of religion, all right? The virtue of religion, which he thinks is something that is available to us by reason. We don't need to be instructed catechetically that it's necessary for us to worship. Rather, this is something that is immediately attendant upon the natural law. And when he talks about it, he has these cool false etymologies that he entertains. So I think it's like um, St. Augustine says that religion comes from re eligere, to like choose again, to choose again to be in relationship with God. And St. Isidore says it comes from re legere, to read again the law at work in our members. Uh, and Lactantius says that it comes from re ligare, to be rebound, to be rebound. Eventually St. Augustine changes his mind and goes in for the Lactantian definition. But... Why? What does worship have to do with law? Well, worship is about this return to God. It's about rebinding ourselves to God in such a way that we are wholly free. Because those persons are most free who are in the immediate presence of God, who behold him face to face, and cannot but choose him. So it's not about freedom from coercion. It's not about having a variety of options among which we can opt. Rather, it's about being bound to the good in which we delight and by which we are perfected. So, not a drag or an imposition, rather laws to be conceived of, construed as saving, making us virtuous, helping us to secure the common good, and please God in the end, orienting us towards heaven. Thank you.